Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. It's been a very eventful few weeks, Peter, uh, but I guess uh, amongst the headlines this week, the uh, one that really struck home to many investors was the decision by Shell, the oil major, to cut its dividend by two-thirds, which is the first time that Shell has cut its dividend since the Second World War. So this is a uh, certainly a dramatic event, and it's a company, of course, on which many investors have relied for, uh, certainly for income, uh, for a long time. So what's behind this uh, decision? Good morning to you, Jonathan. Um, yes, and what's very interesting is when you compare the difference between the approach by, for example, uh, Shell, and on the other side of the pond, the approach by Exxon, for example, who have not cut their dividends, uh, who want to borrow money to pay dividends on the basis that their return on invested capital uh, is not interesting enough for shareholders, so we may as well pay the shareholders the cash. But coming back to here, obviously, the the, the super majors um, are, who, whose status was a reliable income stocks, this is now being questioned. And the first thing, obviously, that happened is that Brent crude uh, has dropped 70% year-to-date. We discussed this oil war, which erupted about six weeks ago between Saudi Arabia and Russia and the geopolitical reasons for that. But of course, demand at the same time, thanks to the lockdown, has dropped by by one third. And furthermore, um, oil majors have difficulties in transporting workers to oil rigs, which of course is also courtesy COVID-19. I have a friend who lives in Tanzania and on the on the coast, and he has a helicopter business, and he transports um, uh, oil workers from onshore to the offshore rig. That's completely died down now. So demand plus COVID nineteen. So that's the first observation. I don't know what what you think about that. Well, it's certainly. Uh, I mean, Shell, as you say, is. Uh... Uh, hugely important to to those who rely on on equities for their income in this country. It actually it accounts uh, for, I believe, twenty percent of the total UK dividend income paid every year on the main UK market index. So it's particularly uh, important here in the in the UK, uh, and of course, it's also widely owned by many of the funds that offer income to investors as well. So it certainly is a big shock, um, particularly as. Uh, of the two big UK oil majors, that's BP and Shell, uh, Shell has always been regarded as the as the, uh, the one of superior quality to BP. BP has been more uh, exposed to the upstream, but Shell has this good business model where it has both downstream, a very active downstream refining business, uh, and also an upstream exploration business. So to say that it's a shock, and obviously BP has so far said they're not going to cut their dividend, but if Shell has cut theirs, it does seem very likely that BP in due course will be forced to do the same. So, yes, it is a significant uh, development and one that's had a big impact on the market over here this week. And it does raise this question about what actually is the best strategy for an oil major in these 
late uh, early 21st century when it's no longer the world we were used to uh, before uh, and as you say exxon is doing one thing and uh, shell is doing another uh, but the long term what what do you think the long term prospects are for for the oil majors yes well i think the highest priority number one is that they should stop making promises to shareholders whereby on the one hand they promise to become cleaner to repay their debt i mean shell has huge debts on its balance sheet but at the same time promise them to increase dividends uh, that really doesn't work they've tried to do it by a combination of cost cutting but you know cost cutting there comes a point where cost cutting is no longer really efficient then you have the question of dividend cover where i read it was very interesting that over the last year or two uh, dividend cover has dropped from 122% uh, of um uh, of net profits to 43% in 2020 but that's a that's a path on the road to ruin um and yet it shows how what you were just saying a minute ago how hugely important it is for the for the british uh, investors but you know it's a cat biting its own tail because costs need to be slashed a lot further in order to keep dividends at the historic level and then you get to that to that state where the the dividend tail wags the investment dog um which, which is you know which is not good it's certainly so, a good certainly yeah. a good development that that's for certain um now, you, mentioned, you mentioned the downstream activities, but you know, I think even demand for downstream activities like refined fuels and so on has also dropped uh, sharply. And, and in America as well, capital expenditure is being reduced for the sole purpose of, of preserving dividends. I, I just think that, that that can't really be good for shareholders who think long term. Um, incidentally, to answer your question, I'm certainly no expert in the oil and gas industry, but I get the feeling that compared with former cycles, the oil price is really destined to stay lower uh, for longer, I'm afraid. And that, of course, has pros and cons to it. Well, it is worth making the point, I suppose, that uh, it wasn't that long ago that the oil price was $100 a barrel, uh, and it fell very sharply from that level at, at one point, but it had also risen very sharply to that level. And, uh, of course, the last uh, several decades have been uh, characterized by periodic uh, spikes and then falls in the oil price. Um, and, and so, but there has been more recently been a bigger question about the long-term future of, obviously, hydrocarbons, given the focus on, uh, reducing emissions and so on, the whole environmental uh, issues have cast a question over the over the future of the oil majors and whether they can continue to prosper. I mean, it is fair to say, I think, that they're very large companies and they do spend a huge amount on capital expenditure every year. I mean, the sums dwarf those of, of many other industries. And so they do actually have quite a lot of discretion. They can turn and turn off and on, if you like, the, the cash flow taps. Uh, and in the past, that's always been how they've dealt with these crises. But the fact that Shell's board has finally decided to cut the dividend does suggest that they are uh, aware that that perhaps old cycle, as you say, is no longer relevant to the in in this marketplace where we are today. So there's a big question there. But it does raise a bigger question also about about this whole issue of how you should be investing for income. 
I, I don't know if you saw this week, uh, last week rather, um, Terry Smith, who, who runs a fund that which you'll be familiar, of course, very familiar, has a has a has a similar, almost as good strategy as yours, I would say. Uh, he uh, he wrote an article in the Financial Times, basically saying that equity income investors uh, are essentially living in a fool's paradise. Partly for the reason you've mentioned, because it can't be sustained these levels of income. But he's also he also said that. Um, you know, the average level of dividend cover, again, he was referring to the UK market, uh, the FTSE 100, is 1.1. In other words, that is barely covered by, uh, is, is barely covered by the earnings that companies are making. And he said, of course, in the longer term, that cannot be sensible or sustainable because companies need, many companies need retained earnings in order to continue growing. They've got to reinvest in the business in order to, to grow uh, the business. So... I'm sure you'll agree with the general thrust of his of his argument there that the better the better approach he argues is to go for what he calls total return and if you need income you have to sell some shares out of your out of uh, what you own. Is that something which you have sympathy for? Um, Jonathan, not only do I have sympathy with that, but that is exactly what we have been doing for the last thirty years um, in our business. That is exactly right. You take. A, a percentage figure which is approximately that of a long bond yield. So let's say, or a realistic long bond yield, or maybe where you think it should be. So let's call it 3%. And then because you've got a program, an investment program that covers a long term, you then have a discipline where you slice off 3% every year for the next five years, say, and you ignore whether the market or the performance has been strong on the upside or whether you're in a bear market. If you've had a year where you've made 30%, you still only take 3%. And if you've hit a bear market where you're down double digits, then you can still take your 3%. And you're not influenced by dividend yields. You're not seeking a higher and higher coupon through a lesser investment risk, and we'll be talking about the corporate bond markets in a minute, and you're really able to have this, this long-term program. Uh, 10 years or 15 years ago, the figure was 5%, and it moved down to 3%. It, can, it probably should move down further. And that is, of course, a huge problem. But in terms of what Terry Smith was saying, I totally agree with him. And my conclusion for this dividend obsession is that this obsession, which is in, in fact, um, it's a mirage, but it's now reached high noon. And the enormous change in circumstances has actually shown how misplaced it is. So when you're confronted with an investment opportunity with a high and attractive dividend yield, it's a red flag and be very careful. Right. So paradoxically, the higher the dividend yield, the more more alarmed you should be, which of course just, but of course the, the reason the companies are paying out these dividends is not because necessarily they think that's the best use of the money, it's because that's what people actually want them to do, that's what the market seems to be wanting them to do. So in other words, there is a lot of demand for dividend income and that seems to be driving, or one of the factors driving corporate behavior. They're not doing it just, uh, they believe that if, I mean it was well said, I think one of the companies I used to give some advisory work for they basically, the senior management knew that if they cut the dividend, they would be fired, basically, because they would be deemed to have failed. So they will go to almost any lengths in order to avoid, avoid cutting the dividend. 
this time round, of course, when you've got something like the, the virus, it actually gives you an opportunity. If you have been, what we say, over-distributing, you've been paying out more in dividend than you should do, to reset at a lower level. Uh, and maybe a lot of fund managers have been saying this week that I've been reading about have been saying that's exactly what they think will happen. But I suspect that's a little bit of wish fulfillment on the on the part of the fund investors. <laughs> it may not be what actually happens. Because if you are management, you've got this mindset that you have to go on paying the dividend, otherwise you'll be in trouble. But uh, this does provide an, an excuse, if you like. If you're looking for one, this, this, this environment will provide an excuse um, to reset your dividend at a lower level if that's what you think is the right course to do. And what is the point of having an investment with a high dividend yield, but at the same time that investment from the balance sheet point of view is very weak. It's got a lot of debt. Its return on invested capital is very low. Its incremental return on invested capital is even lower. It's barely growing. It's not in control of the prices, so it has no pricing power. It is in the hands of cyclical cyclicality such in the oil as in the oil and gas industry beyond um, reasonable proportions so why would you want to be invested in that kind of business simply because it's giving you a dividend this year it's all to do with the short-term time horizon of the investors uh, when you don't know what the situation will be like next year so I'm afraid it's not for me and it's not for Terry Smith either. So he and I agree on that one. I mean, the only other point to make there, though, I think, is that if you, you, know, you read any kind of basic primer introduction to stock market investing, they will always trot out this, this fact that the majority of returns from, from in equity investment comes from reinvesting dividends, okay? which, is, which is an interesting, it is, it is statistically true, but of course, it rather misses the point, which is that the uh, the real success comes from uh, companies reinvesting at a, at a higher rate than their cost of capital. So it's actually it's slightly misleading because you can pay out a dividend, and then if people then reinvest it back in the business, you then have the question: Well, why aren't you? Why isn't the company doing it itself? If that's the, the best route. Precisely, precisely. But then you and I know, Jonathan, that the traditional investment textbooks are best thrown away into the bin. <laughs> well, indeed, and uh, uh, fortunately, I haven't written one of those, so I'm, uh, I'm I'm very happy to go along with that statement. Um, let's well, let's look at this issue of what companies are doing with their with their money. Then, because related to this is, of course, uh, paying out a dividend is one thing, but it's also a question of how you're managing your balance sheet, uh, because you can. Uh, what's been possible for the last few years, uh, and we could discuss the reasons for this, is that many companies have been borrowing more and more money. Uh, and they're doing that because interest rates have been low and because that money has been readily available for various reasons, a lot of them to do with the, with the fallout from the financial crisis. So companies have been borrowing more and more money and they have been sustaining their dividends. But as you say, that may not be the best way of running a business to load up your balance sheet with debt. Obviously, it's fine in the short term, uh, but until something bad happens, when you're, if you like, the tide goes out and we find out who's wearing no clothes, as Warren Buffett likes to say. So um, I guess, I'm guessing here, Peter, but I don't think you'll be very happy about the fact that companies have been borrowing so much uh, in, order to, uh, in order to pay dividends and also, of course, to, uh, to boost their earnings per share. 
You're quite right that I don't like that. And I like even less the arguments put forward, which is that debt is so cheap, go out and borrow to the hilt and release trapped value. That is an extremely dangerous proposition. And um, for those who don't believe me, all you have to do is look and see what happened at the end of March, you know, barely five, six weeks ago, which was the low point in stock markets. And so if you want, you, you start off by looking at the corporate bond market in the US. And I say that because that's the, the, the biggest one, the, and the widest and the deepest and so on. And in other parts of the world, the corporate bond market is not as developed. So look at that one. And on the thir- 23rd of March, the low point was reached in stock markets. So that, that was the moment of maximum of pessimism. And that's also the moment, and it's certainly no coincidence, when the junk bond market in America simply stopped functioning. And so as a result, the, the Fed announced that it would buy um, junk bonds, whether it's recent junk bonds like fallen angels, as they call them, or old junk bonds, in order to support the prices. And that, of course, in addition to established sovereign bonds. So um, central banks are now acting much more aggressively than during the financial crisis of 10 years ago and much faster. But what was very interesting was how the bond market split up on that, in that crucial week. And the wheat was separated from the chaff in the sense that government bond markets, the yields in sovereign bond markets collapsed. And the observer, when he saw that happening, concluded very quickly that the market is afraid of a deflationary bust, whereby prices in in the main street go down quicker than interest rates and bond yields, and that creates an increase in the real price of money, in real terms, which, again, will bankrupt huge swathes of corporate borrowers. That's why the corporate bond yields went up when the sovereign bond yields went down and created this spread. And that was a very, very dodgy moment. And of course, the Fed once again came to the rescue uh, in, in doing what I just, what I just uh, described. And the question is whether that was effective. And funnily enough, it was effective. And it resulted in the corporate bond market waking up again. And so the first issuer was Yum Brands, that was more or less at the bottom of the price market of the highest yield. And the last one was Boeing, which was last Friday. So I'm now going to answer your question. If um, the level of indebtedness of corporate bonds just goes up and up and up uh, to the same degree as in the last 10 years, then something big has got to happen at, at some stage to deal with this debt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so let's, let's, let's think of that. I mean, one of, the, one of the points I suppose I would put to you is that the market, ha- I mean, the, the, the Fed uh, and other central banks, they have, by effectively saying they're going to buy almost anything that is in the, in the market at the moment, they are, may have been effective in, in defreezing the corporate bond market, but of course they may just be encouraging more of the same because, you know, we've seen a record, I believe the record last week was the, last month was the, was a record for corporate bond issuance 
in in the in uh, the United States. Uh, I think something like two hundred and seventy billion dollars worth. I think of, of corporate debt was issued, um, which is a big number, uh, the highest there's ever been in one month. I think uh, so. There's short term kind of short term uh, market stabilization measures, but there's also this issue of the longer term, uh, whether this actually can be sustainable. You cannot have um, such a continuous issuance of debt by companies without, as you say, eventually running into some kind of traumatic event. So we may only have postponed the inevitable rather than uh, rather than uh, patting ourselves on the back at our success in keeping the markets open. That's a very good way of putting it. Um, but then, you know, it reminds me of the burning house. We discussed that a few weeks ago. When your house is on fire because your teenager has lit a cigarette in a shed, uh, the first priority is to put the fire out, not to admonish the teenager. That can happen later. So I think the Fed was right to calm down the market. But what is very interesting, or will be very interesting in the next few weeks, is the amount of high-profile bankruptcies that are going to emerge out of this, because they will, have, they will turn out to have been the so-called zombie companies that were kept alive uh, through this low level of interest rates. But of course, the low level of interest rates is no longer low in the corporate bond market, because although the bond market is working again, uh, if you compare what Boeing is paying um, in, by way of coupon compared with a couple of years ago, it's, it's more than double that. So I think that there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies coming out, which of course is the reason why the stock market collapsed. In the, uh, collapsed. That's exactly the reason. It was forecasting all these high-profile bankruptcies which are going to come now. And because the market is looking ahead, um, we are shocked at the bankruptcies, but of course the market is looking ahead. I think, Jonathan, that there are various ways of dealing with debt. You can, you can write it off completely. Well, you can work out how deflationary that would be. Or you can monetize it by introducing rampant inflation and passing the pricing power back from the consumer to the producer, which would be a huge reverse in globalization. Which, and, and by the way, these principles apply whether it's the sovereign bonds or corporate bonds. Um, I don't know the answer, I'm afraid, to your question, is how is this debt overhang going to be dealt with? I just don't know. We'll talk about that next year, but I don't think we'll have any clear answers for the time being, I'm afraid to say. No, but I, don't, I think we, what we can, all we can say at this point, I think, is that uh, there will be a price to be paid. There will be a reckoning of some sort. Uh, and, of course, uh, it'll be the effects of a, a global change in that environment will affect different parties differently. So it'll affect different types of company differently. It will affect different types of consumer. And it will affect the, uh, the wealthy and the not-so-wealthy uh, in disproportionately in some form we don't yet know so it's going to become a big and that in turn then becomes a big political issue uh, and as well as uh, an issue for the functioning of markets well i think that's probably all we've got time for this week peter but um uh, it would be nice to think that we'd uh, we <laughs> we could be slightly more perhaps optimistic than we have been but uh, the, the, some good will come out of it by introducing discipline back into the market uh, into the market for for debt and indeed uh, 
no doubt perhaps that the uh, the change in sentiment towards the oil companies uh, may also be positive in a longer term. I mean, they, they too need to get their act together if they're going to survive in this market. But investors, I think, would need to be aware that the, the world is changing in some ways. Before our very eyes. Jonathan, thank you very much. Very nice to chat as usual. Indeed. See you next week. See you next week. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah Weekly Podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.